The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. I remember some men started praying and others started crying. Um, Part way through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm -hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. (laughs) Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode follows on from the last, episode 123, and is the second episode where I'm exploring the Air Force Museum of New Zealand at Wigram in Christchurch. Well, I'm in the archives now with Matthew O'Sullivan. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit to start off with about uh, what your role is? My title is Keeper of Photographs, so that it, it ex- explains itself, really. Right. I keep the photographs. Yep. Um, the title itself is a, is a particularly European title. You don't really get keepers in this part of the world. Yep. They're more called uh, curators. Um, so I look after the uh, photographic part of the museum collection, um, but also, and uniquely to my role, I have, or rather I look after the um, Defence's official negative collection. Okay. So this is the, the Air Force, are the, 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 the service that has the photographers. So if the Army or the Navy need some photos taken, they'll call the Air Force to go out and do that. Right, right. If, if there's a photographer stationed on a uh, frigate, for example, he'll be a, an Air Force photographer who's just deployed. So you're looking after all three services? Uh... No. Um, I have, a, by, by far the largest part of that is the Air Force um, series. Yeah. Uh, and in the post-war years, they um, created what was called a public relations series, and then that, that then split down into a joint services public relations, which is tri-service. Yeah. Um, and then in the 80s, they split that further, and they actually started filing each service separately. So that was split down into um, uh, Public Relations Navy, Public Relations Army, Public Relations Air Force, yeah. and Public Relations Defence. Right. So the Navy have the Navy side of things, and I have the Army and the Air Force side of things. Okay, right. Yeah. So can you give us a, a basic overview of how much you're, you're uh, keeping here, how much you're looking after? The volume of material? The volume of material, yeah. Okay. It's hard to be specific, as you can imagine. Yep. I'll, I'll take you through there later, and um, uh, and you, you'll be able to see for yourself. Yep. We think somewhere around a million plus images. Wow. Something like that. It is, in, and you will see. It is very hard to to estimate. Um, the early, the, the earliest um, that we have um, between the two collections, and and the difference being that the Air Force negative collection is still owned by Defence yep. and then there's the donated material which is owned by the Trust Board Okay. Yep. so they're, they're quite a distinct separation there yep. but in my day to day role they're kind of all muddled up yep. um, so the earliest photos that we have um, go back to pre-World War I yep. 1909, 10, 11 something like that the very early aviation in New Zealand Okay. Um, the earliest uh, Air Force negatives go back to the mid twenties. Oh, There's right. not many that survive from that period, but they're, they're the earliest. Um, and then they really kick in uh, as the war comes along. There's there's a um, a series of about ten thousand, which is is just simply called PR series, yep. and that's public relations for New Zealand and the Pacific Theatre. Okay. Uh, there's a little bit of European stuff chucked in there, a little bit of Southeast Asia chucked in there, but it's it's mostly New Zealand and Pacific. Right. So, um, I I understood that the RNZF didn't get photographer trade until about 1939. No. And, and before, is that not true? No, they, they there was there was a photographer here um, shooting their own. Um, 
the Air Force making its own imagery yeah. from a lot earlier than that. Okay. Yes. Now, it, it may be that um, 1939 was when the when trade training was instituted. Right, okay. So what, what they yeah. might have done was... was um, recruited already trained photographers. Yes, gotcha. Because uh, if, if you think about uh, one of the roles of, of the Air Force uh, in that period, particularly the interwar period, is uh, the Air Force had aircraft and so they did a lot of aerial photography. Right. So uh, they needed photographers, they needed people to process those films and some of that still survives, some of the very early aerial film. Yeah, actually, now that you say that, that makes perfect sense. It was the first trade training course in 1939. Uh, I've actually met a guy who was on it. He's still yes. alive, lives in Taupo. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, yes, they did have photographers from civilian life who then joined the Air Force, didn't they? That, that's right, and that's not exclusive. There, there were uh, commercial companies which came on to Wagram or Fenerpai and, and did f photography. Yes, Um yeah. And you often get that down in Christchurch, you'd, uh, they'd be named Green and Hahn as one of the popular companies yep. that did those. And I've seen their stamp on some of the photos. That's yeah. right, you'll yep. see them all over the place. Yep. Um, and, and of subject matter which you would have expected during wartime to have been not being able to do by a commercial company. However, it happened. Right, right. Of course, another one is Leo White, who started off in, what, 1930s or something. He was an Air Force photographer. He was trained by the Air Force, yep. and then he went out as and um, started a commercial business post uh, post war. Right. Actually, it might have been just before the end of the war. Right. Yes. Might have been more like forty four. Yeah. But yeah. there's a book being written about him, so it'll all uh, be in that. Oh, that'll be good. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. Um. So, the other thing too is we're we're talking about the early days, but in the last sort of ten, maybe fifteen years the Air Force has gone digital, haven't they? Correct. So how does that affect you in terms of archive and stuff? Well, when um, when I said the earliest um, negatives, official negatives I hold is from around about the 20s, um, the latest that I hold is around about 2008. So from about 2001 to 07-08, they were phasing out of film and into digital. Right. So I hold here the... Um, the film material yep. that that survives, and I'll, maybe I'll explain uh, a little bit about the term that survives later. Yep. Um, but it, it phases out, and anything that is um, what we archivists call born digital, that's in a server up in Nohakia, okay. which is administered by still by the photographic trade and the IT boffins up there. Right, because they, they the Air Force keeps photos for twenty years before it comes to the museum. Is that right? That was the original arrangement. Okay. Um, and and it always used to be that every year I would get another cubic meter of cabinets of with negatives in. Yeah. Um, there was a trade restructuring some time ago, and the decision was made at Ohakia that they would get out of holding negatives completely. So I I got the last. I got everything that they had, yep. and that was something like five cubic meters of material. It's, it was a quite a bit of, of material. I mean, that's, this is including cabinets and things yep. like that. Yep. So there's there's quite a bit of stuff there. So I hold everything that's film based that survives, yep. and uh, the Air Force look after the born digital material. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps I'll, I'll explain that term that survives. Um, as an archivist, one of the 
issues that I have to deal with is chemical deterioration. Right. Now, in the 30s, going back a lot earlier than the 30s, but with the relation to my, the collection that I look after here, uh, they were using nitrate-based plastics. Um, and as soon as you say the word nitrate, people say, oh, uh, well, it can be dangerous. What I hold here is not dangerous. It hasn't deteriorated to the point where it is dangerous. Okay. Um, but there are chemical deterioration issues, which is something that simply can't be halted. It is an ongoing thing, and, and the best that I can do is to scan it and create a surrogate. Right. Um, another reason for loss is that um, at the end of World War Two say 46, 47, something like that, they reviewed the photographic trade. As they reviewed the entire Air Force, they were downsized, everything was being downsized at yes. the time. And they went through and said, what do we need all of these negatives for? And threw out a large number. Oh, no. Keeping pretty pictures of aircraft and most photograph, course photographs. Yeah. So there's a lot that's, that's missing from that... Uh, from the wartime bases and from that, say, up to the mid-50s because of that. Yeah. And then from the, say, 1950 through to about 1965, they started using a different type of plastic because they, they had already realised that nitrate was no good. So they most of the companies changed to what was called an acetate-based film. And there are varieties of that. There's um, diacetate, triacetate... It's you know chemical structure. Yeah. Um, however, they deteriorate just as badly, if not worse, than the nitrate film. Okay. So, and that's commonly called vinegar syndrome. And when we go into the storage area, you will smell a very very acetic acid smell in the air. Yeah. That's that's the off gassing from it. So there's a deteri a second de deterioration process which is going on, which I have to wrestle with as an archivist. Right. right. So. I can often help people when they come to me and say, have you got a photo of X? But sometimes all I can say is, well, a photo was taken, but I can't help you. Right, right, okay. Uh, one of the other things that uh, I think a lot of people will be interested in is when did the Air Force start taking coloured photos? Um, I, I bet people wish they did it a lot earlier than they did. Um, the earliest colour photos, and it's v only a very small number, um, I think they were just experimenting with the media, yeah. is from the early to mid-60s. Oh, wow. Ish. That late? Yes. Um, oh. That being said, right up into the 1980s, they were using a large amount of black and white film. Wow. So even things like recruit course photos from as late as the 80s are black and white. So it's one of those things that, that the, you have to think about what their uses were. One of their uses was public relations. Yes. And they went out and did a small number in colour so they could be used as public relations. But a large part of the photographer's work, that their day-to-day -day work, is um, fairly mundane um, recording of... Uh, it might be a fault or a, a, a modification or something like that, and yep. it only ever needed to be black and white. Right. Yep. So why shoot colour? You know, and it wasn't until colour came was starting to become quite um, 
well, I, mean, I guess it was after colour became quite ubiquitous in the photographic industry, but that was when they started just using colour. Right. And you really, in the last possibly 10 years, you won't get any black and white photography. Okay. Uh, I, um, I get quite excited when you find coloured photos from private collections, like particularly the guys that went up to Singapore in the 60s and that sort of yes. thing. Uh, do you feel the same way when you see that? I always like to, to, to receive colour imagery from as early as I can get it. Yeah. And the good thing about the period that you mentioned, and, and even a little bit earlier than that, is that most often they're, they're slide film, Yes. what I would call a colour positive, and most often, particularly in the early period, that those slides are what's called Kodachrome. Right. It, it's one of the very early um, colour positive processes. They had to be sent to Australia to be processed. But actually, Kodachrome is the m most long-lasting and soundest, it's a horrible word, but the most long-lasting of all of the colour processes. Right. So usually, they're the, the most... Um, true to life yeah. uh, colour images that you can get. Obviously there, there are potential issues with dust or mould growth or things like that, but yeah. they're usually very nice um, uh, colour photos. Okay. Yeah. Um, we do have a very, very small amount of World War II colour photos here. I know that there's a couple of prints in uh, an album, and they are of some trainees who are obviously sightseeing in United States as opposed to Canada yep. and they're standing beside a road sign that says South Dakota or something like that. They're okay. Um, and I don't know if you've re recently um, seen the Aero Historian, the Aviation Historical Society magazine. Yes, There's some yep. colour photos of 75 Squadron Lancasters yes, in there. Yeah, those are fantastic. Those are they're almost one of a kind. I know in Europe there's a lot of colour photography around, yep. but, but in this part of the world is very, very small amounts of it. Yeah. And he would have had to spend quite a pretty penny buying that film and getting it processed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even black and white from uh, the average person on a squadron is very rare because they weren't allowed to have cameras for a start. Well, a lot of them broke the rules. But <clears throat> yeah, that that's... It's funny because, no, you weren't allowed to take photos up there, but, yes, people took their own cameras up yeah. there. And, you know, I've, there's a photo of some people that have arrived here at Wigram. They've come back from the Pacific by Dakota, and they they posed beside the aircraft with their kit bags and everything, and one guy's holding a camera in his hand. Right. Sometimes the photos that, were, that they, um, they shot and then had printed were passed through the sensor because you can see a sensor stamp on the back yeah didn't always happen in fact hardly ever happened actually one of the really interesting ones is um, number 21 squadron the corsair squadron uh they had a photography club mm -hmm. and uh do you, do you know about this uh i've i've heard tell but i'm not familiar with the story well um it was a guy called neville jackson he was one of the pilots and he um he had his own camera and he, he was taking lots of photos but Everyone else became interested in them, and they set up their own dark room, and they would, uh, they would, they basically had a club, and I think a few others got cameras from the Americans or the PX store or wherever, and they they were basically all taking photographs and then swapping them, and so a lot of the pilots on that uh, uh, on that tour ended up with big collections of photographs, and it's all sorts of stuff like the pilots relaxing and. Um, 
you know, it's not just aeroplanes, but there's lots of the aeroplanes and, and that sort of thing. And and so, you know, when you get a group of s- several different people who have all these big collections and each one of them is slightly different, that's a fantastic find. One of the good things about personal collections is that they often took photographs of things like the bed space in the tent, for example. Yeah. You know, so that more mundane day-to-day life. Yeah. Whereas the official photographers that's not the angle they were asked to do. They weren't up there recording life. They were up there to get pretty pictures for advertising. That's right. So um, the the other side of that coin is that the Air Force photographers were using professional cameras and therefore much larger negatives. And so the the image quality of those uh, tend to be a lot higher than the image quality of the... um, private cameras with smaller film and far less quality lenses. Yeah, no, that's right. There are there are variable qualities of uh, of those private ones, but sometimes you get some really good ones. So, and particularly, not so much with the Air Force, but uh, I know a lot of the Army guys uh, picked up Leicas off the Germans, and um, some of the photos that they've taken after that are brilliant. Well, we, of course, Leica are renowned for having good lenses in them. Yeah. And it, really, that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's higher quality glass for the light to pass through. Yeah. And just getting back to the coloured thing, I know that there's a few photos uh, of RNZF P40s up in the Pacific that are um, in colour, taken by, I believe, US Navy or US Marine Corps photographers. I think you'd be aware of those. I have seen one of them. We certainly don't have any in the collection here. Right. Um, it's most likely that. The Americans took it. They had access to colour film in those days, um, whereas the New Zealanders possibly could have bought some of that film right. from the PX store, but it's most likely they're American it, photographs. It just makes me wonder how much more they might have taken that are sitting in American archives of coloured stuff of our aircraft. In- inevitably. Yeah. I had a, um, a, a gentleman in America who... Um, was researching his relative who was in a US Navy Corsair squadron yep. and he found a piece of film covering this, this fellow's unit and at the end of the film is some RNZF aircraft oh, cool. which is, you know, you'd never know in this part of the world that that's out there yeah, yeah, exactly and, and that's one of the things for me as an archivist is that I broadly know what I've got in the collection here but I, each, each subject area or each aspect of that is, has a different value to different people. And, and I might think, oh, that's interesting, and, and write a little article and put it in the Air Force News or something. And some people might say, oh, you know, that's, that's not very interesting. But then again, I might um, do something else which I think is pretty ho-hum but I you know, I need to put an article in there and people say what have you been holding on to all this for you know, yeah. I don't know that you're interested in that until somebody asks the question exactly yeah. so it, it's quite hard I know that I've got stuff here that people are going to you know they'll love yeah. I, I know for a fact however you know th- there's only so much I can do to actually make that available yes yeah so what you, you get to see um, so much history what what are What's your favourite era for um, for that history? Um, it's hard because, well, 
it, it, that's a really hard question. Yeah. Um, there are certain asp- certain factors of it which which interest me. The fall of Singapore interests me. Yeah. There's not that many good photos of it. There weren't that many New Zealanders involved with it, yeah. and it was such a dog's breakfast. The whole business. Yeah. Um, the RNZF in the Pacific interests me because it's we in New Zealand know about it, but everywhere else in the world really don't know anything about it. And a good example of that is that a um, a German aviation museum. Um, Flugzeug Classic or something, I've probably pronounced that really, really badly. They got onto the Brian Cox story oh, yes. and have been serialising his story in their magazine. And in Germany, they have gone absolutely nuts for it wow. because they don't know about the Pacific War. And it started off as a three or four parter and it ended up being a six parter yeah. for which I contributed photos and um, you know, the, the, the author in Germany contacted me directly and and then Brian Cox saw some photos that I'd submitted for that and he said oh that's better than the one I've got can I have a copy yeah yeah um but probably most of interest to me personally is the interwar period let's say the formation of the air force 1923 through to say 1937 right because it's a it was a very small air force then um there was only Hobsonville and Wigram um, and there were some very interesting things going on, and there were some very interesting approaches to um, to solving problems. Shall we say, like for example, before they had a an officers' mess here at Wigram, before it was built during the expansion period, they had some bell tents out on the uh, you know in, in a grassed area, yeah. and you know in one one or two of the collections, there's a photo written underneath officers' mess. Oh right. Wow. So, you know, you can actually start placing some of those things. And because I've been here for a while at Wigram, I've, I've seen what it was like while it was still a base. And then I've watched all the buildings getting demolished. I can now point to an area and say, well, that building was there. And before that, there was this building was there. Yeah. So actually, Wigram, I guess because I've been here, I, I work here, I can actually, the, the history of Wigram itself is quite interesting, seeing the buildings spring up and get pulled down and yeah. things change around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of any any of the Air Force bases, I think this is the most historic and, and most interesting. Well, certainly it's the most historic um, because it was it was the location that the government agreed to use for the first flying field. Yeah. Um, you know, that really, it, it kind of begins and ends there, you know. Um, yeah. th- I won't get into the argument about the closure of Wigram or anything like that. That's, that's you know, there's a lot of talk out there, a lot of misinformed talk out there about all of that. But yeah. But, I mean, you know, just the fact that almost every person in the Air Force at some stage would have passed through Wigram all the way through from World War One. Right through till uh, the end of the the base. I mean, it was yeah. There was well, a lot of training here. Certainly, up until um, initial training was moved to Woodburn, that would be the case. Yep, because yeah. they would have done all their initial training here. Yeah, and then I mean, there was the two trade schools even after that. So yes. plus all the officers trained here, pilot training. all the pilots trained here. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those amazing places that's just steeped in history, really. Hmm. Um. 
what are the what are the photographs that you've seen come up in the collection that have most had an impact on you? They've, they've been like a surprise or or you know really interesting photographs. Another good question. Um, it's yeah. I don't really know how to answer that in a, in a concise way. Yeah. Um, I might have a look at something and think that's for a, a photograph album. Uh, and I think that's a lovely photo album. It covers a, a specific period where I know we don't have a lot of coverage. Yeah. Um, but then again, um, it's, it's not unique, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it's hard to get it's hard for, for anything to be unique and I'm talking about this from somebody who's worked with this collection for a long time so I, I can flick through photos because I'm looking for something else yep. if you were standing beside me you'd say hang on now I want to have a look at that and yep. then the next one I want to have a look at that because yep. you've never seen it before exactly yep. so it's of interest to you yep. and just before I was looking at some looking for a particular photo and I thought well Dave Homewood's coming in. He'd probably be, you know, love to see this little series. Yeah. So it is hard. Um, as I said, I, I like the the interwar period. So a nice early photo album from that period. Let's say the the late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. You know, so you're really only going to be talking about Hobsonville or um, Wigram. Yep. So you know, you one of two locations. Most likely, it'll have some Wigram. Um, material in there, yep. um, and the the quality of the of the photographs yeah. is goes a long way as well. If I've got um, an album that's got two hundred um, contact prints from a box brownie with no other information at all, that's not as good as a photo album that might have only ten photos, but from much they might be enlarged or they might be by you know they've been sourced from a professional photographer and the owner of the album has written the names underneath and the date that's much more used to me than an album that's bulging with with you know unnamed photos yes yeah absolutely because for you as a researcher I, i can't offer them to you as a researcher because i they don't I don't know that they reflect what you're after. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Mm. I mean, I've come across a lot of um, photo albums myself when I've met veterans or or their families, and it's usually worse when it's the family because there's no one around to say who's who. And you get those photos, you go, "Well, who are these people?" Well, that's right. And then you get the other albums where everything's written under it, all the names and squadron numbers and all yes. that. And it's yep. Yeah. It I goes mean, a long way. It does. Yeah, it does. I think anyone out there listening who might have been in the Air Force or anything, um, they need to start labelling their photographs for the future. Anybody. Yeah. And that's one of the hard things about uh, these days with born digital images. Um, I understand about metadata, but most people don't. Yeah. And that's where you should be putting that information, but most people store it in a hard drive and then it'll get lost when the hard drive crashes or something and, and it's gone. Yeah. You know, and, and there's all those issues around, um, for, for us as archivists, um, it's our job to preserve the material that's in our charge f- 
as best we can and for as long a period as we can. Yes. Um, so I'm just looking at, I'm the keeper for now. Yeah. You know, and as long as I don't do anything to botch it now, they'll be available in 100 years' time. Right. Or 200 years' time. We're looking at the 100th anniversary of World War One. Well, I want the stuff that, that we've had digitised for that project. I want the originals, not only the originals, but the surrogate materials that we've created to be available for the 250th anniversary of World War One. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also we're um, just approaching the 80th anniversary of the RNZF as well, and you must be busy with, uh, with that, I imagine. We have, the museum rather, has some projects on the go. Uh, and some units have taken it upon themselves to decorate their offices or, or their, their buildings yep. with historic aircraft. Yep. Some of those projects have been a little larger than others, but that's that, that's what we're here to do. Yep. They're our service and, and we're here to represent them. That's, and it's good that the young guys coming through now, 18, 19, 20, are seeing stuff in their workplace where they're learning about the history of the of the Air Force, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, it's put in a, in a broader context. Um, we're a heritage institution, and we're preserving an aspect of New Zealand heritage for more than just the Air Force, for the people of New Zealand. Yeah, and that that as a you know as a museum professional, that's that that's that's it. That that's that's my job. Preserve my collection that that my managers have put me in charge of. For New Zealand. Yes. Uh, I was just talking with Barf earlier and we were talking about the museum not just um, not just being aeroplanes and, and things but it's also preserving the culture of the Air Force and I think in a lot of the photographs the, the actual culture of the Air Force comes through as well doesn't it? It, it does um, and it's all very well to have you know as many aircraft as, as an Air Force wants but if you don't have someone to fly them I mean, these days we've got drones, but yeah. you know, it 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 rests on people. Yes. And so, therefore, it's the, the history, the the aircraft, the technology is one very small aspect of that. Yeah. You know, who flew that? What did they do? Why did they get that goal? Exactly. And who serviced that aircraft? That's right. And who were the people behind the servicing crew who were looking after all the admin and the supply and the cooking well, and? There's that that um, that old quote. Um, particularly about the Army, but it stands true for the Air Force. For every one soldier in the front line, there's 10 people behind the line to keep yeah. them up there. Yeah. And that's pretty much, is probably 1 to 15, actually, with the Air Force. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's the, the air crew get all the accolades, but every one of those air crew, if you speak to them, they'll say, we couldn't have done our job without the guys on the ground. Right, right. Now, one of the questions I'm asking everybody is, uh, have you got a favourite uh, artefact or... Uh, you know, a collection of favourites in the museum. Is there one thing that is just the thing that really captures you? Again, that's a very difficult question. Um, I can go through, when we go through, I'll show you my what I think to be the best photo in the collection. Okay. It's not necessarily my favourite object. Some years ago, we um, mounted an exhibition called Recollections, uh, RE colon collections. Mm -hmm. And what we did was we picked a number of the staff and they picked their favourite object. Yeah. And we put it on display. What is this object? How do we do it? You know, not so much how do we do it, but, you know, um, 
what is it, how is it used, all of those sorts of things. And then why did this person pick it? Yeah. This person is such and such and they picked it because I picked in that one um, the full dress helmet from the RAF helmet from the 19, early 1920s. Okay. Now there's not many of these things around. It had a ostrich plume in the front and it had black fur around the outside. They're a quite a unique looking thing and they're very, very unusual and and in this part of the world quite rare. That's what I picked then. I don't know what I'd pick now. Um, I'd have to think about that yeah. a bit harder. Something with a, a really good story to it is is always nice to nice to pick. I've never even seen a um, a photo or anything of a hat like that or a helmet like that. Where would they have worn what sort of ceremony or well it, it, full dress so for the for the most formal of occasions and it, 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 this as a as a full dress uniform wasn't something that was around for very long in the RAF I can show you a photograph of, of one if you want I have a an image database here yep. which at the moment is only available within defence um, but it is we're looking at options to make it go to the wider public. Oh right. Um, so I've I think I catalogued it using the term full dress, um, but I may not have. I might have to refine my search a bit. Yeah. There we go. So. Um, that is what the hat looks like. All right. Um, so in fact, this is a this is the hat from a fellow called Piper. Um, and so it's fur around the sides, and then it's a hard leather core, and then we've got this ostrich plume in the front. Okay. We've got. I'll show you a better photo when we get down to the collection area. Cool. Um, this is the um, Harold Lord Piper trained at here when it was still called Sockburn Aerodrome under Canterbury Aviation Company. Yep. And he went to England and he served in the RAF. Ended up a test pilot. He did lots of interesting things. I've come across his name in my research. Um, yeah. I think he he might have been in the Territorial Air Force for a bit. I think possibly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you notice that the, it's a lot cooler in here. Yeah. Um, and that's for the for the preservation of the collection. Yep. Um, this first room is photograph albums on that wall, or album collections. Yep. In here we have um, s smaller personal collections just of prints. Yes. There's a lot of reference material, and through here it was cold as still. This is. This is the main store, so this is where the bulk of the photographs uh, are kept. Okay. Now on this side, these rows of cabinets here, this is the official negative collection. So you can see that going by the numbers on the end of the drawer, we've got roughly, say 1500 numbers in a drawer. Wow. You count the drawers, the other side's the same, and we've got them over here. That's so just in the official negative collection, it is vast. Yes. Um, another, I'll show you another thing. I'm just getting out my 
white gloves because you don't handle photographs with bare hands yep. in an ideal world. So this is the wartime public relations series we talked about before, and yep. it goes up to roughly 10,000 here. Then it kicks into the post-war public relations series, which carries on through here. And in here we've got the early 80s, probably. Okay. Um, but to give you an example of one of the issues, and it's an issue that's only come up since digitalization has come up. Yeah. I have two packets here, both numbered PR2030. However, we have... Just in one packet, how many would that be? 200 negatives? Yep. So how, how, for me as an archivist, how do I give each one of those frames a unique identifier when right. all I've got to show is PR2030? Right. I've, I've got around it, but it is, it, it's all very well. I might get a print with that number on the back. Yep. But yep. then look at how many negatives I've got to to sort through to find that one Yeah, that it could be w within the 400 negatives you That's right. Had, yeah. That's right. Other ones, like PR2031, the next negative in, the, in that series, yep. and this is a completely random selection, we yep. have two negatives. Right. And it looks like a presentation. Right. But you've still got to call them A and B. Yep. <laughs> wow. Most of this is, is I'll use the, a broad term, plastic-based um, film. Yep. Uh, down the end here is, again broadly, glass-based film. Okay. Um, in the in the, uh, the jargon is it's the support. Yep. Uh, glass support, plastic support, paper support. Um, so there, this is the part of the Wigram series. This is just post-war. Yep. And I really don't know what that is. This is signals office equipment, dated 20th of July, 1949. And it's a technical photo that no one's ever going to be interested in of <laughs> yes. some piece of kit. Some grey box with knobs on um, That being said, let's go to... Let's go down here, which is, again, the Wigram series. Yep. Um, the start of this is in the 20s. And I will I'll grab out an early one. Sort of by about here, it's... Sorry, by about here, we're getting into the early war, sort of the late 30s, early war period. But yep. if I just grab a random one out of here, this one here, that, we'll grab the next one. I'm going to grab the next one because I've made a mark on there, so I know that I've digitised this ah, to a high resolution. So now that that's been digitised, I don't, I shouldn't ever need to access this again. And right. I, in an ideal world this room would be refrigerated. I, I want this collection in 3 degrees okay. as opposed to 12 or 13 as it is now. Yep. So I'll just show you this. And this is a 4 flat, four flat acid-free unbuffered en envelope just to give you the jargon. Yep. So I have a uh, what's, what's termed a full plate um, cellulose negative. Yep. So the, the dimensions of that negative is uh, 8 inches along that side and 6 inches along that side. Okay. So it's it's roughly, slightly bigger than A5, it's just for people to, to get a handle on yep. how, how big this negative is. Yep. And you look at that, that's right, that's a front view of a DH86. Yeah. Beautiful photo. And this photo, this print on the wall, has been printed from a negative that size. Right. And 
you can count the blades of grass. You, you can, can look yeah. at the stitching in the. This is a photograph of a, um, a Bristol fighter yep. uh, here at Wigram, but it is it is stood being enlarged to a metre wide, r remarkably well. Yeah. You try and do that from a 35 millimetre negative, and it's not going to happen. No. Well, that's amazing. I'll put this back away. Um, probably not the most exciting of photos to show you, but it was random, so that's what I, you get. I tell you what, I get really excited by DH86s. So. Do you? Oh, yeah. well, there you go. Um, a lot of these in this drawer are glass. Yep. Um, should we go over to the other side? And we'll move out of the, the Air Force owned, the, the Defence Official Negative Collection, yep. into the Museum Donated Collection. Right. And whereas the official negatives are a chronological thing, yep. the museum negatives, largely speaking, have, are arranged by subject. Okay. That's, um, that's a, a system which I inherited. If I was starting from, from fresh, I wouldn't do it this way. Right. However, that's, that's the system I inherited. Yep. And so, for example, here we've got um, the aircraft file. And I'm going to go for the, the one I remember I just said before, I'll show you my what I consider to be the best photo in the collection. Yep. And I'll go to the DH4 file. So already we're looking fairly early. Yep. And I'm going to flick through these just so you can have a look at this. This is the destruction of the DH4s and DH9s actually wow. in there. Here at, uh, at Wigram, yep. Wigram Aerodrome. In fact, that one, oddly enough, we've got names for, which wow. is fairly unusual. Then we've got some DH4s in the um, Middle East area. It's one of ours again. Some poorer quality ones. Without any sort of provenance. Yep. Um, you know, hopeless. Yeah. Um, then we've got a, another one from a large... Um, uh, negative. Yep. We've also got Morris Buckley sitting in a um, DH4 yep. called Blue Jay. You're probably familiar with that, but look at the clarity of that that uh, image. Very, yeah, very nice. There's another print of it. There'll probably be multiple prints of it. That I consider to be the best photo in the collection. Okay. It's well composed. The wingtips aren't chopped off. Yep. It's good quality. It's from a large negative. There's something happening in it. Yep. It's just an all-round beautiful image. It is. It's great. That is really great. Um, what they're doing, in fact, is oiling. The, um, what are they doing? No, they're pumping fuel up to the uh, fuel tank. They have, a, have an oiler, which is very similar to that. Yep. We have one name for them. Gibson. Gibson is this fellow with the black hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So, that's... If I was to pick one photo, that that's the photo I would pick. Cool. Um, is there something you'd you want to have a look at that I can perhaps <sighs> see what I can dig for? Um, how about some? Make it hard because I like a challenge. <laughs> but how about some um, 1938-39 uh, Territorial Air Force stuff at Wigram? I said make it hard. Oh. So again, going by subjects, this drawer has. Um, some First World War material in the front. Yep. We have some material from the New Zealand Flying School. Yep. Uh, erroneously called Walsh Brothers Flying School. It was never called that. It was always called the New Zealand Flying School. Yep. Some material from the Canterbury Aviation Company. And then we have some material 
this folder is between 1923 and 1930, yep. the start of military aviation as such. Yes. And then we've got 1931 to 1936. So I'll go in here. Now, if you were approaching me and this was your research request, I would also look in the aircraft file for the types of aircraft that we were operating at yep. the time. And I'm just going to close that up. And I'll flip past them like I did. So there we have a, a named group photograph. Yep. It's a modern reprint. Let's flip through a lot of those. I don't know if you've seen Block 7. That's a photo yeah. inside Block 7. Yeah. That's Fairly correct. unusual. I've seen that photo before. Uh, yeah, a lot of these are these first few are modern reprints. Yeah, that one's not. We've actually got the original of that. But this is trainees at Trentham. Of course, all our, uh, new recruits went through Trentham before yes. they came to Wigram. That's a great photo. And or number nine Air Force Wing Trentham, nineteen thirty-six. So they would have been regular guys, <coughs> regulars. Yes. Yeah. Um, old John Claydon's in that photo somewhere. Oh, right. Because he, he's the, the last of the pre-war guys, I think. Yeah. So there's another original print. Nice quality, well composed. Wow. Not all of it's good quality. There you go, there's another good quality. That's great. Now there's something, so look, we've got names. Yep. We also have a date and a location, which is great. But actually, the thing that sticks out to me there, can, can you see anything in there? I'm not giving you any hints, but there's something in there which, which is actually um, very reminiscent of this particular period in time. You'll notice those three Black guys are wearing armbands. Yeah. For so the king who died. The king would have yeah. died. Yeah. And the, you, you'd be able to tally up that 1934 date with the death of one of our monarchs. Right. Oh, that's it's one of one of the uh, sorry four and four and five hangar yeah. as they are now. They were called one and two hangar up until the end of World War Two. There's a group photo there. Buckley, Finley, Wilkes, Isaacs. It? <coughs> or they're probably named on the back. There we go. Denton, Somerset, Thomas, Wallingford, uh, Neville, Burrell, Isaac, Wilkes, Finley, Buckley. So all of the big names, really. Yeah, very much so. Um, of those, we have a collection, generally in the museum, not necessarily a print collection, to Neville, Isaac, Wilkes, Finlay and Buckley. Okay. What's the building? What's that building? This is the end of Block 7. Oh, okay. Um, and this was, uh, was tacked on the end of Recreation Building. Again, it's named. Yep. There's such a small air force then that it's it is possible to name them. Yes. Great. So it goes on. This is a fairly, fairly hefty sort of a um, file. There's block seven in the background. Yep. And there's photos like this which is of interest to people who might be restoring the aircraft type behind because you don't often see that angle on with that level of clarity yeah yeah you're on right on the underside of a, a wildebeest as yeah. that is that's cool you can see the little flip down screen so that the air doesn't rush in when they're doing bomb aiming ah right 
I've never even noticed that before. As you say, it? it's an angle you don't normally see. Yeah, so. that's right. And when I look at these photos, I'm, I look in the background. Yes. You know, without that, you wouldn't know where it is. Yep. But you can see the background. You know it's Christchurch. Yes. You know it's it's here. Yeah. There's another Trenton photo. Lots of groups, which is great. Yeah, I, I like looking at the background in the photos too. And there's one that I've got of Fenuapai, and it looks like um, around about where the Greenhouse Bridge would be now, and there's Fenuapai during the war. There looks like a bridge or something there. There's some sort of structure, and I've tried to work out what it is. Nobody seems to know. Right. <laughs> So that's, that's what I have there. Um, another part of the collection which is, um, belongs to the Air Force, um, but around the back here, which one do I go in? I have four full-length cabinets, and this is aerial film. Oh yes. So as yep. I said before, the Air, Fo Air Force had the aircraft, yep. so they did a lot of aerial survey work. Yep. And a lot of this is, this is all post-war, this is the post-war Wigram series, yep. which dates from roughly 1950, maybe late 40s, through to 70s-ish, something like that. Okay. Uh, and they're named on the end of the tin. Um, for example here, Birdling's Flat Survey, there's one, two, three runs which could be mosaic together yep. and they also uh, a lot of these is what they draw topographic maps from right yeah uh, i have people coming to me from historic places trust doc you know um, they might want as early a photo as they can get of a parasite for example right, right. or a, a bird colony a seabird nesting colony right I know that uh, the Air Force used to be called upon quite a bit in the 30s and 40s by the councils for working out where flooding and drainage uh, went right. to and stuff like that. Yeah, so. up, up the top here, um, this is the, some of the very wide film that we've got. Um, in amongst that, there is, say, a dozen, I think it might even be more, films which they... Um, the Air Force went up and surveyed the whole of Hawke's Bay in the mid-30s after the earthquake because ah. the, the, the land changed, particularly yeah. around Napier. Yeah. Um, so that, that, was, that was surveyed almost in its entirety right. and there would be 500 frames, probably more, covering that whole wow. area. I can show you, I've plotted them and I'm, I'm doing a bit of work with Google Earth so I can make things, um, uh, you know, I can show people the coverage. Yeah, fantastic. I see you've got a uh, photo there of a, a short Singapore. Have you got many photos of the short Singapores? We do. Um, there was only four aircraft, so obviously there are less photos of it. And yep. I would go to S for short, which is by manufacturer before um, before type. Yep. And there we go. So there's yeah, not that many. That's a that well, one is well known one. That, that's, we hold the original negative of that one. Right. But most of these you've probably seen before. Yeah. Uh, I do have some other sources. That's, that's a good RAF oh, one, of yeah, course. Not one of ours, yeah. No, RAF one, RAF one. Um, that's an RAF one. Most of them are, well, it's actually probably 50 50 RAF in New Zealand, right. these. But, I mean, Kiwis were flying in them yeah. over, over there as well. Exactly, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so that, there's not a lot of that. There are one or two aircraft types that the RNZF have operated where they just aren't photos of. Okay, which, uh, which um, types are they? Things like the rear one, some of those impressed types, yep, you know, where yep. there was only one. Yes, yep. Um, there's a little bit of sound recordings here. Um, this is uh, what are commonly called records, but in the in the archival community are called discs. Yep. Um, a very very small collection of those. A very very small collection of reels, um, the old analog reel-to-reel -reel cassettes, and we have a moderate collection of analog cassettes of interviews with people. Okay. And what about film? Do you archive film here? There is a little bit of film over here, and it's not a massive collection of of moving film. We have two cabinets like that. Okay. Yep. So, like I say, it's not huge. The vast majority of what we have here is things like instructional film, and I'm going to get one of these right. out as an example. Yep. And I'm going to try and get one out which is easy to get out. I don't know what it is. So this is a not a great example, but th these are, um, I guess, cutting room floor um, offcuts right. from a finished film called the Airman. Oh, okay. So these are the bits that didn't make it into the final film. Okay. We will have a copy of that film elsewhere in the collection. Right. And um, that probably wasn't the best example. see one there the Bren mechanism oh yeah so it's an instructional film how to probably strip down the Bren how it, how it works and how to put it back again um, that being said though there is some really really good stuff in here and I'm going to grab this one out and we have on the top there 489 combat so this right. is film from it's a print from the gun cameras out of 489 Squadron bow fighters right towards the end of the war. Is this the famous footage where they're attacking the ships? And we have numerous footage okay. of like this, so yep. yeah, it, it is that type of thing. Right, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I won't say it is that, that exact yeah. sort of thing. Um, some of it are ground targets, it might be lighthouses or buildings on the shore. Oh, okay, not, they're not always ships, they didn't always attack ships. There was other things. That's actually really, I'd never even thought about the fact that. Lighthouses would make a good target, but they would, wouldn't they? That's right. Um, and we do have similar sorts of things from 485, 486 Squadron. Yep. Um, probably less from 488, European 488. Um, certainly nothing from, from as early as the fall of Singapore. Right. Um, something like that we have transferred onto a digital master, which from that we can make, we can make viewing copies. Right, of course, yeah. Uh, do you have stuff like uh, like have people given in um, the home movie of uh, air shows or things like that? We have quite a bit of that. Yep. yep. Um, it's something that well, we don't get a lot of moving film donated anyway. Mm. Um, things like the twenty first and the twenty fifth anniversary air shows in the in the late fifties, early sixties. Yep. There's a lot of coverage of that, both moving and still. Right. So it has to be something really special for me to get excited about. Okay. Okay. Um, if we move to the next camera, actually, one question: you, that first one you pulled out uh, with the um, cutting floor yes. uh, bits and pieces, 
Is there anything for maximum effort? The Lancaster film that was made with Sydney Fire Squad? Not cutting room floors, oh. no. All, all we've got is a, um, is a print of that because yep. that was made in England. Yep. So anything like that is, is only ever going to survive in England. Right, right, um, right. So, yeah, unfortunately, no. Because that would have been great because it, apparently they started off with several crews who got killed in the, in, or didn't come back. Right. Uh, you know, and so there would have been footage of crews yep. other than the crew that, that, that actually yeah. was I, I met the navigator from that film. Right. Um, so often some of these smaller ones, um, that's still 16mm, yep. um, but you get the 8mm, these are, these are the home movie yes. quality. It's actually not very good quality film at all, 8mm. It's, it's equivalent of using the old 110 cassettes. Right. Yeah, those horrible old cameras. So you can see how tiny those frames are. Yeah. And you'd need to magnify it just to see what's on it. Um, it has been mastered. Okay. There we go. It's about uh, Canberra 6110 crash on takeoff at Corat in April 1964. Oh, wow. So very historic. From the point of view of Canberra accidents, yeah. yeah. In the great scheme of things, it's it's another aircraft that's crashed. Yes. Yeah. Um, but to have film of it, um, I don't think it's film of the actual crash. I think it's film of the aftermath. aftermath yeah. Um, but it's unusual to have film of that sort of thing that someone happened to be there with blank film in their camera. Yeah. There must be a lot of home movie out there in people's um, closets and shoe boxes and stuff. That miles of it. That, yeah. that would be brilliant to see the light of day, but yeah. Well, one of the one of the issues with all of this type of thing is um, digitisation. Yeah. Uh, and it is time-consuming, and it's costly, and you know, we haven't digitised everything in here. We've prioritised the stuff that that is most likely to be of interest. As I said, there's a lot of instructional films in there. They're stacked so high to the top, I can't get one down really easily. Right. Here to wear guided weapons. So this will be a probably a 60s American film. Okay. But it's not been digitised. It's just a training film that they that ended up on the base. Yep. Because yeah, I want to see the accession number out. Well, are there any sort of final thoughts that you want to let people know about uh, how they can access or, or contact you? <clears throat> well, I wouldn't. We're here to we're here to help. We're not here to keep all this stuff to ourselves. Yep. Um, that's not what museums do. If, if I had that attitude, I'd be completely unprofessional. Um, if somebody's interested in it, then they can have access to it. Uh, it's not up to me to make a call as to what is what should be of interest. I'll do my best to find out what what's available. Yeah. You know. Um, sometimes I can't help. Most often I can help. Um, hmm. um, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's a again, it's a hard question to answer, but but yeah, in in short, we're here to help. Yeah. 
and and it doesn't matter how um, seemingly simple the question is sometimes the most simple one-line question sent from my iPod uh, can be the most complex and, and difficult time-consuming ones to answer right. to get a good answer for yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's if someone out there has a question, if they, for example, are, are trying to write the history of their granddad or, or something like that, um, they can contact you through the website, can't they? Absolutely. Um, through the website, our email address is research at airforcemuseum.co.nz. It'll all go through the website. There's no worries there. Yeah. Um, just ask. If we think we need more information, we'll ask back. Yeah. Um, it's as simple as that. Absolutely. Um, we'll do what we can. Um, we we don't charge for our research time here although as far as photographs go if someone wanted a reproduction print of a photo to stick on the wall obviously there's a fixed cost there which I can't avoid so there's, sometimes there are costs involved yes. but for, for the pure research there's no cost involved right. well that's fantastic well thank you very much for your time Matthew it's been, okay. been really fascinating to have a look through the archive and um, you know you and I have corresponded over the years and and we have met before years ago, um, but I hadn't actually been into the archive before, and that's yeah, really neat. Yeah. Well, it, it's not a public area. Yeah. You know, exactly. we we just can't bring people down here. Exactly. You know, already, even one person in here, we're humidifying the air. Well, we don't want a humid air in here because yeah. you know our, our our breath is is humid. Right. So there are issues about bringing large numbers of people through this area, yeah. and and it's not because. You know, it's locked away behind a vault and, and you're never going to see it. It's for the good of the collection. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for the privilege. I, I really appreciate it. Okay. Cheers. Very good. Well, now I'm with uh, Simon Moody, who's the research curator. Hi, Simon. Hi. It's really good to be back in the archives here. And uh, you're one of the guys that, uh, when there are inquiries come in from the public, you're answering lots of questions. That's right, we get lots of different questions from lots of different places from lots of different people and they can be literally just about anything. Right. Um, the range of questions could be from uh, a school student doing a project um, or an assignment through to a question about war graves or the, the person that might be in a war grave. It could be from someone restoring an aircraft or more often than not, it tends to be possibly from a family member that's just interested about what their relative did in well in the Air Force. Right, right. So um, tell me about your journey into this uh, role for a start. Okay, well, as you can probably determine from my accent, um, I'm originally from the UK. And um, at university, I studied history and archaeology. And I did a master's in medieval archaeology, which kind of sounds probably a bit odd, considering what I'm doing now. Yeah. But after working in archaeology for a while, I realized that it was a very difficult subject to get a career path into. So I looked at other options within the heritage sector. And um, after working in the sort of environmental heritage sector for a while, um, I was lucky enough to secure the job of curator of documents at the RAF Museum ah, right. in London. Yep. Um, now, military aviation had always been a passion of mine. So I kind of always like to think of it as turning what was supposed to be a job into a hobby, that's yeah. the archaeology bit, and turning the hobby into a job. Right. So I kind of switched those around. And so I was there for a few years, and then I went on to work for the Army Museum in London as well. So I've kind of always uh, worked with military archives, or aviation archives. Okay, and when did you come to 
Wigger, but you've been here a while. Yes, I moved over with my wife um, in August 2009. Oh, right. Yep. So we've been here about seven years now. So that's about, oh, yeah, no, I think I met you in 2011. That's right, uh, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your job, uh, as we said, answering inquiries, but what does it really entail? What, well, it's not really just answering inquiries. Um, my job is kind of uh, overseeing the, the total sort of activities of the research team. Yeah. So um, you've spoken to Matthew O'Sullivan, who's obviously our keeper of photographs, and he's a specialist in the areas that he looks at yes. in terms of photographs and audio, digital, all of those kind of stuff. Um, my job is to kind of overview the whole of the paper-based and archive collections and the way they're managed. Um, the projects that we do, the collections care that we give them, um, and how we actually react to requests for um, information and assistance from the public, and also from the Air Force as well, right. because um, we are an important resource for them. We're their museum and we're funded by them, so we provide them with the historical background when they require it, whether it's a squadron wanting to find out about a search and rescue that they did decades ago from yeah. the unit histories or it might be the chief of air force is visiting um, an overseas country and wants to know more about what the rnzf have done there historically right. or how many new zealanders are buried there for example from right. the air force yeah yeah of course so what have been the really interesting things that have come up that you've found in the archive uh, that have captured your imagination or oh goodness um where do you start really yeah. <laughs> um Historically, I've always been kind of a bit of a World War One specialist, but obviously in New Zealand, um, the number of people involved in military aviation in World War One was not huge. It was still significant for the time. Yeah. So I've greatly enjoyed working over the centenary period on um, a digitisation project where we're digitising our World War One collections, yeah. and and we'll be putting them online in due course as well. Oh, fantastic! Um, and we're doing that for lots of different reasons. Obviously, we want to make them accessible to people, um, but we also want to make sure that um, these very old and some of our sort of rarest items are preserved because um, you know we don't want to handle them too much. So, if you come into the archives now, you know we can provide you with basically a colour facsimile straight away right. um, of logbooks or diaries or things like that right. uh, to take away. So, um, that's a really valuable project. Uh, but basically the archive is just full of stories and I mean when people come to the museum they come and they see the aircraft and that's fantastic but um, the archive is very much about the stories and the people of the Air Force Absolutely. and whenever a new collection comes in um, or you want to enhance the catalogue of an older collection you know you kind of connect with the stories of that individual with their letters or with their diaries or with their photographs and I think um, the big kick I get out of it is taking like maybe a collection of letters, documents and photographs and, and piecing together that person's story, uh, you know, identifying events in the photographs from the letters or right. diaries and, and really making that story sort of come to life and, and giving value to people who come along after me to, they don't have to do that research because it's already been done. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of highlights of individual collections, it's, it's too hard really to pick because there's just so many amazing kind of stories. Yeah, I guess so. And you're covering, um, well, 100 years of aviation going yep. back to the beginning right here at Wigram. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there, isn't there? There are, yeah. I mean, um, I've 
been looking at some of the early stuff recently and you know we have the diaries of some of the early guys here at Sockburn um, you know, talking about their training and what they were doing and the photographs that go with them and you've got this sort of group of carefree kind of teenagers almost learning to fly yeah and it's pretty cool and then they go on the biggest OE of their lives over to train in the UK some of them and um, some of them end up seeing action and you know following them through that journey is actually really quite cool yeah yeah exactly um, and of course the other big anniversary that's coming up is the 80th anniversary of the RNZF uh, in April and you must be fairly busy with stuff and we are yeah um, we're working we're working on a number of things but um, doing a lot of research as well for um, the activities and being asked for information um, by RNZAF units to support their activities and particularly for the 80th tattoo yeah. at Ahakia which is obviously going to be a huge thing and um, we do that regularly when there's a big sort of RNZAF event, obviously a historical anniversary we kind of come into our own and people ask us for a lot of information and photographs and things so they can put together their own resources and tell their own story. Right. In telling the the story of our air force, um, it's it, it's really important to preserve and then and then tell it, isn't it, to keep that um, to keep the culture and the and the history alive. Oh, essentially, yeah, and arguably, sort of what goes on in this building is is kind of like the the corporate memory, the historical memory of the air force. Yeah, um, and you know the the depth of information that can be here in the detail of information that can be here and also the, the, the pleasure of sometimes sort of being able to tell someone information that they never knew or sometimes correct in the information yeah. um, that they've been told down generations of families um, and and that's quite satisfying to know that you're providing them with sort of accurate stuff yeah. um, and um, you could argue yeah that you can't really tell the story of the RNZF without sort of having a good session in our archives <laughs> um, but it's such a huge story as well and it's such a changing story um, that uh, the scale of the archive is actually quite daunting I think for people when they come and do research. Yeah absolutely I, I can agree with that. Um, I've come here before I've done some research here and the amount of stuff that is available and, um, and the staff are all so onto it and, and, and <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> yeah I, I mean you know there's the it's it's brilliant. I mean, uh, just sending off an email and saying, "Hey, do you know anything about this?" And within you know a day or two, you'll get a, a really good elaborate answer. You guys do a, a fantastic job. And yeah, uh, it can it can be tricky sometimes, particularly when we're busy. Yeah. Um, and we do drop the ball from time to time, but we we do have a, a standard that the Air Force um, gives us of that sort of quick turnaround. Um, that's one of the principles that we have, and we try to to follow that as well. So I mean it. It can be challenging. I mean, we like to certainly acknowledge people who have emailed us, but sometimes you get asked a question that's kind of like, whoa, <laughs> where do I start with that one? Yeah. Um, or that's going to really, um, that's really going to be a, a toughie. Um, we had one uh, a little while ago. We were working with um, the Japanese Ministry of Health, um, and they wanted to find evidence of occasions where Japanese service personnel might have been killed. Um, in operations by the RNZF, okay. um, which is quite a big ask, yeah. given the time span and the number of units in the Pacific and the depth of the records, yeah. you know. But um, we've been working together on that, and it's been quite interesting. 
and trying to piece all together, piece together these highly detailed sort of little mini combat reports, if you like, and right. they can then go and do some field work on the ground. So we do some quite unusual jobs like that some, from time to time. That really is an unusual one, and, and yeah, where would you start? I mean, it's just yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, a I mean, good a good example was like there's a photograph. Or in one of the unit histories, I think it's 18 Squadron, of a Japanese tank with a Japanese soldier lying next to it. And um, it's very well located in, in the text and in the captioning. So immediately there, there's the evidence that's needed to say, well, a Japanese soldier or soldiers died in this particular area. And so, you know, they can now, in quite a pinpointed position, they can go and find out a little bit more about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Yeah, amazing. And when you think about not just the, the uh, Corsairs and Kitty Hawks, but also the the Avengers and mm. and the Venturers and the Hudsons, were all dropping bombs. Mm. That's right. And you know we've we've got records here of, for example, for thirty one squadron of all their operations against the um, Japanese farms and and outposts. And um, in some of those, there's references to you know Japanese being seen to be killed. So yeah. So. They'll do that. So that they can they can now go to to that and, and use it. So, and that's the thing. I mean, the application of archives I've seen over the last twenty years change. Um, when I first started off at the RAF Museum, people were interested in the aircraft. Yeah. They're interested in the histories of the aircraft. They were creating books of serial numbers, giving like the, the potted histories of Lancasters or Spitfires or whatever. Yes. Um, now we have researchers coming in who are looking at letters between husbands and wives and boyfriends and sweethearts. Yeah. The whole dynamic has kind of changed yeah. and the way archives are used and the types of archives that are used change as well. So a lot of those kind of aircraft related records aren't used as much now. It's the social risk records. That's the way kind of research trends kind of change. It, it is really interesting that, mm. and, I, and I've seen it myself as well, mm. um, it is the the human personal stories that people are much more interested in now mm. so um, you know and do, nothing nothing tells it like a personal diary or or, or letters does it that mm. you get the real sense of humanity and they're so important I mean oral histories are done and we d we've done our own oral histories and a lot can be got out of them but um, there's something a little more immediate sometimes yeah. bearing in mind the things like censorship and so on but there's something quite immediate about um, using those contemporary documents yeah. um, to sort of really get a sense of what it was like at the time. Absolutely. Um, because obviously veterans, 60, 70 years later, sometimes have a very different perception and a different kind of recollection of, of what happened. Yeah, I mean, they forget the detail of the day-to-day -day stuff yeah. and only remember the big events. But, mm. uh, you know, I've got a diary that I've been um, working with on a project that was a, a ground crew guy on three squadron mm. and and you go through his diary and, and almost every second or third day there's a new rumor of where they're shifting to mm. but we know from the historic fact they never shifted anywhere from Guadalcanal mm. uh, they things like oh we're going to Singapore or we're going to Burma or and there's places mm. that didn't even make any sense but that was the rumor that was going around and he was mm. writing it in there and you yeah. know you get that sense of wow and also the other thing in that was um head note down whenever one of his mates was sent home with illness. Mm. And you don't get that from the operation records books or anything like that because, you know, they'd never wrote about the the ground crew and when they got ill and, and the stuff that's been kept of the official files. It's but not Harold Berry, is it? Yes. It is. is yeah. yeah, yeah. Well you've got the original the original. Oh you've got it, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. If you want to see them later on that 
can go and have a look at them. I've, I've got the copy of them. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've got a copy too. The, yeah. uh, the, the original handwritten diaries are Brilliant. here. Brilliant, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's quite an interesting character. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And there's, Talk, and there's talks a lot about getting fed up and <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> generally not very happy but you know makes the best of a bad thing and see that's the thing if, mm. if i'd been able to sit down with him 70 years later mm. all of that wouldn't have come out because mm. you know he, you'd forget that you'd, that's right you'd completely forget that kind of detail so. so it's great working with the veterans but obviously there's there's a lot less veterans now than, yeah. than when i started doing this kind of work so it's um it's quite sad but the interesting thing is like when i started doing that work you know we weren't that far after we we had the last of the World War One veterans, yeah. not so much aviators, but the last of the World War One veterans still around. So it's kind of interesting that the same thing's happening now with the World War Two veterans. Right. They're all in the nineties. They're all disappearing quickly. And yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's kind of how history repeats itself, I yeah, suppose. It is. The good thing with the World War Two guys is they've at, at the end of their lives, sort of in their, when they got into their late seventies, eighties. Mm. and now 90s a lot of them have gotten to that stage where they've bought a computer mm. and they've written up their own yeah. own uh, memoirs right. for the family mainly yeah um and you know the world war one guys how many books are there uh, uh, personal accounts like that there's hardly any from hardly Zealand. hardly any new zealanders yeah, yeah I, I i did a, a paper at um, one of the centenary conferences and and made the point that we're kind of we're looking at them through this prism of a complete lack of them speaking to us yeah they're not interviewed except by the radio occasionally and when they do speak they're being asked about what it was like to fly a stop with camel yeah. not what it was like to be on the western front or yeah you know an officer in world war one yeah. they're asked about aircraft primarily and, and nobody really bothered to ask them when they went around on their reunions in the 60s yeah. the 1418 airmen's association so it's kind of sad uh, we have got some letters and some memoirs and some diaries but very very little so you, you you kind of have to do some quite creative things and trying to work out exactly. what made these people tick yeah. and, and just look at them through their actions rather than you know what they actually achieved rather than uh, what they actually thought about what they were doing which yeah. is kind of a shame it is. it's a lost generation that particular one yeah it is and also i guess it depends on who's doing the interpretation too they mm. may get it completely wrong that's right and yeah. and then they'll put that story out and it influences everybody who reads it so and that's happened a lot with some of the great heroes like caldwell and bannerman and others you know that there's just an aura around them when you know i, I kind of like to look at them as more ordinary people yeah and in the context of also what they did later too yeah not just what they did in world war one as fighter pilots yeah absolutely well they with caldwell um i put him up there pretty high because, oh, yeah, because, he's, because he lived in Cambridge so. definitely, <laughs> definitely. And, and you know he, he has got this um, this mana as well yeah. which you know Ira Jones writes about in his books um, and, and he puts him up on that pedestal straight away yeah. so it's clear there was clearly something about him yeah absolutely um, that, that even as a young man people sort of stood up and paid attention yeah. so uh, yeah I, I'm not, I'm not bagging him at all. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Um, he certainly, I would have liked, to, I'd probably like to sat down and have a pint with him because he sounds yeah. like a bit of a character. With, he and Mac McGregor, McGregor would have been quite a, yeah. a good pair to go out for a, a brew with. I think that could have been quite dangerous, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was the count of them throwing, was it throwing a glass at someone, I think, at the end of the war because they weren't supposed to be in the officer's mess. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of typical. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you've come across... Um, well, is there anything in the museum collection that is your favourite? Um, that, that, you oh, know, your favourite artefact? 
that's that's a real tough one. And my favourite artefact. Um, it's funny. Well, we did a little exhibition a few years ago called um, Recollections, and it was a sort of collection of artefacts that were chosen by volunteers and all sorts of members of staff across the museum. Um, and I tried to think of one then, and I couldn't really think of one. But I came up with um, a World War One flying helmet. Um, which isn't kind of unusual because we've got quite a number of old leather World War One staff flying helmets, and yeah. this one had quite an interesting story because it belonged to a guy called Albert Holden, who was from the West Coast, and um, he joined the Royal Flying Corps, trained to fly in 1916, and at the end of his training, uh, towards the end of the year, was involved in a really horrible crash where he broke both his wrists, um, and to commemorate the fact. He marked the inside of his flying helmet. Now, what appears to have happened, it's difficult to tell, but the flying helmet's actually got these huge gouges out of the top of it. So he must have sort of skidded along the ground at some point and, and all this damage was done. And he actually wrote inside, you know, crash of 1916. Wow. So he recorded that on, on the actual flying helmet itself, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, but there are so many things in the, the collection. Um, the 488 Squadron Unit History which was secreted away from Singapore in 1942. That's quite special because it's it's a handwritten big ledger, but it, it just is a fantastic record of the squadron and what it was doing, not just operationally, but also socially as well. Yeah. Um, even as the sort of Singapore campaign was grinding to its chaotic climax. Um, and it's just sort of interesting little things in there. That's a period uh, and a location I'm very interested in. Do you want to talk about um, how do people contact you? Yep. Yeah. So um, we have uh, basically an email account which um, we use, which is research at airforcemuseum.co.nz, airforcemuseum, all one word. And the email address basically comes through and um, we check it sort of really regularly and, and try and get back to people as quickly as we can. You can also call us on um, our phone number as well um, and but mainly we get inquiries by email now and and indeed it's better for to get them by email because we can get a response back a little bit quicker often with that particular way of doing it right. you can also visit us in person if you've got a particular um, subject or archive that you want to consult yeah. um, obviously it's a bit tricky in New Zealand because the distances and travel can be quite a problem um, uh, but we'll try to accommodate people from Monday to Friday from 10.30 till 3, um, but we can be quite flexible as well. And a really good thing when you come into the archive is you can bring a digital camera. And you can. We um, allow quite a lot of the archive to be photographed, um, but uh, all we ask is that basically you sort of make a declaration and that's for like personal mm -hmm. research. Yeah. Um, and if you do want to publish it, um, we do need to know, we do need to be able to sort of just know that that's happening because yeah. um, some of our material is, you know, government material yeah. um, and um, so we just have to be careful and, and also protect the copyright rights of, of uh, some of the collections as well which yes. can still be in copyright so. Yeah. so if somebody was going to publish something they'd want to uh, send the send ma us. manuscript first so you can uh, or just send us an email and we start a dialogue there yeah. um, but we're also looking at the moment at um, um, getting into some of the newer trends on getting accessibility out there and that's things like Creative Commons so we're working working on looking at that as a, an option as well and making it very clear to people 
um, you know, what they can use for what and how and when, uh, which is a really great tool. Um, and you know, we obviously want people to use this stuff, but um, we obviously have to be mindful that um, we have a few responsibilities as well. Yes. It's actually really great how museums around the world now are, uh, mm. go into the digital and you can go to a museum site and yeah. look up stuff. It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? That's right. And, and that's a great thing about the, the digital project we've been doing is, is you know, the idea is that you could be on the other side of the world um, writing a book about um, 74 Squadron in Great War and yeah. um, ping us an email and within hours a copy of Keith Caldwell's logbook could be sitting in your inbox. Yeah. Um, you know, and a top-notch copy too, not just something that's been done, you know, on a camera, it's properly professionally done right. uh, to high resolution. So, Because right. uh, you obviously want to make sure that the, the product you're giving to people is the best quality that, that can be done. One other question too, if people out there happen to have documentation that um, say is from World War Two or whatever, mm. they don't know what to do with it because their dad or granddad yep. or whatever has died, um, how do they approach you? Um, well basically uh, they can approach us directly. Um, we actually have a colleague who's our registrar who deals with all of that, Emma, Emma Meyer, and she arranges and organises that whole process. But often people will approach the research team about archives or photographs. Yeah. Um, and we really welcome that because uh, sometimes, you know, I'm afraid things, the importance of things aren't often realised until it's too late. Too late yeah. um, so we collect, you know, all sorts of different types of documents. Um, flying logbooks are very important as a record of a person's flying career, but letters, diaries, memoirs, all sorts of things like that as well. Um, and obviously photographs and photograph albums. And because we're very much set up to look after the originals, we, we do prefer, if we can, to have the originals donated simply because that's what we're here for. Um, yeah. We're here to actually preserve the objects as much as the stories that are contained within them. Right, right. But there may be cases where the family wants to keep the original, but you'll take a copy for... It depends on the, Yeah, it depends on the situation. Yeah. So we, we view it on a case-by-case -case basis. Right. You know, if, if there was not going to be an opportunity in the future to perhaps have the originals then, then yeah. we might consider it, yeah. Yeah, okay. Cool. Um, is there any sort of other final thoughts on, on preservation of our history or...? Yeah, um, well, I think one of the things that's a bit sad is that um, kind of what's in archives and what's in this archive is kind of really the tip of the iceberg yeah. and so much material either through official reason, for official reasons hasn't been preserved or it's been lost or destroyed. Um, so I suppose we're quite lucky really to be looking after what remains, but it's, it's sometimes kind of a bit sad that you know that there, was, there were records of things that no longer exist and that's kind of the intriguing part. Yeah. But um, that's why we're really keen on um, making sure that we do keep collecting and yes. keep adding. And sometimes official documents like unit histories from World War II appear from the public um, because perhaps their grandfather was an intelligence officer and just didn't hand it in at the end of the war right. or wasn't asked right. and it's found in a trunk um, sometime down the line and it, it turns out to be the only copy of uh, a Pacific Squadron history and we've had that happen in the past so um, that's the cool thing and the great thing is you never also the other thing I love is that you know a cardboard box might turn up in the post and you open it up and it's an amazing trove of information uh, or covers a subject that you don't have anything about in the archive. Yeah. 
currently. Um, and that's really why I enjoy doing the job. Sure. It's um, you know, making, making people happy by giving them information they need um, and just filling in gaps in families, histories, you know, making sure the Air Force has got what it wants. And that's um, all part of the job, really. Excellent. Well, keep up the great work, Simon. It's been a pleasure to visit the archive again and, and to you. catch up with you guys. Thank you. We'll see you again soon, Dave. Yeah, definitely. Cheers. Awesome. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.